0: You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is an unusual thing. We're about 6,000 miles apart. Today, I'm your host, Victor, and I'm recording with Andrew O'Hara.
2: How's it going?
1: Welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, You know, I want to go ahead
1: and, and let all of our listeners know about Stitcher Premium. If you haven't joined Stitcher Premium yet, now's the perfect time. Stitcher Premium gets you completely ad-free episodes of hundreds of shows like Comedy Bang Bang, WTF with Mark Marone, and Bitch Sesh, a real housewives breakdown. You also get 21,000 hours of exclusive content. New exclusive originals like Freedom with hosts Scott Ackerman, Lauren Lapkus, and Paul F. Tompkins are launching every week for Stitcher Premium members. If you love podcasts, you're missing out. When you listen to ad-free apps in Stitcher Premium, your favorite podcasters get paid. Help support your favorite shows and join Stitcher Premium today. For a free month of listening, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code APPLE. So, Andrew, we ran a story about the possibility of the end of the Lightning Connector. Yes. I personally would be surprised if if we actually reached the end of the Lightning Connector anytime soon. But this report is saying that there are anonymous sources, always trustworthy of those, from analog IC vendors informing Digitimes of potential changes, including a redesign of chargers and related connectors in next-gen mobile devices. They aren't suggesting specifically that a change from Lightning to USB-C will take place, but they strongly suggest that Apple is considering such a switch. What do do you think about this?
2: I mean, I still don't think that Apple is going to ditch the Lightning connector. I think there's a a lot of benefits for them to stay with it. And at this point, USB-C is just so all over the place. I mean, we've had so many issues with, like, you know, poorly constructed cables causing damage to devices that it seems it would be very unlikely for Apple just to to blindly just jump into that with no kind of certification program for that. They're losing a lot on MFI licensing, which is more their problem than consumers' problems. Um, They just started to buckle down on like getting more lightning accessories out there, mics and headphones in the last two years. So it seems like you know, two years ago, they would have known that they were going to possibly make that switch and they wouldn't have pushed everything into lightning even more so. So it just seems like an odd time for them to possibly make the jump. I think we're going to see lightning stick around for, for at least a little while longer.
1: Yeah. I mean, lightning is a very robust connector. It's It's got basically eight terminals per side plus one ground. It's really stable. The By, by having the contacts on the external side of the shell you you don't leave a whole lot to go wrong with the cable itself with a USB-C cable the contacts are internal to the shell and are potentially a little more fragile of course apple was on the working group that designed that connector they were part of that they were part of the spec for that so it's not like they're not familiar with it it's not like they're not aware of what's going on there you know clearly they were party to it when the revisions to the spec were made so that USB-C cables can't screw up and kill your laptop any longer but I agree. I don't think this is very likely. So do we put a whole lot of credence into this switching away from Lightning in favor of USB-C on devices?
2: I feel like we've heard this same rumor many, many times, and it's hard to give this one any more stock than a lot of the other ones that we've heard, you know, in years past. I think I agree with you.
1: You know, just because there are a number of Android phones that are shipping with USB-C instead of micro-USB, that there are all the Macs that are shipping with USB-C, I think we will see the push to... I think that we'll see the push to wireless charging and wireless communications more than we'll see the push to a wired communication with a connector change.
2: Absolutely. I think they're really pushing for, for better wireless charging, faster wireless charging. At that point, there's no need to make everyone who has cables switch them for the sake of switching them when they're really pushing wireless charging. They're adding more stuff to iCloud. They're adding the wireless charging to the phones. They're... They're doing wireless CarPlay, the AirPods, they really seem to push more wireless than caring at all about the wire that's on the phone. If anything, they should just switch it to Lightning to USB-C in the box by default, which we've also heard many times, and I'm very hopeful that we'll actually see with this year's iPhones, but I'd rather them go down that route than than killing Lightning altogether.
1: Absolutely. And of course, one of the knock-on effects of this stuff that people don't think about is... When you're designing a connector, you have to also design for the sealing of the connector. If you're trying to make a waterproof phone, you have to figure out how you're going to go ahead and have that connector not be an inlet. And and we know, we ran a story this week about Apple considering new ways to improve water resistance of the iPhone. They're, they're trying to make a liquid tight seal when the connector is plugged into the port, preventing anything from entering the outer casing. So you could potentially plug in underwater or plug in above water and then dunk it while still plugged and not have water penetrate the connector seal. This is from a patent that was published on Tuesday called Sealed Accessories for Electronic Devices. And, you know, that this is the thing about patents is that there are inventions that may never see the light of day, but this is one that feels like it might, you know, with, especially with all the focus that Apple has on watertight phones and has done interesting things to pump the water out of the Apple watch with, using the speakers and the digital crown. They're, they're mentioning use in the patent of using a vacuum generator to add protection rather than sucking away moisture. The pump generates a vacuum that draws out a deflective section to prevent water ingress. It's, it's just an interesting kind of thing. It's one of the things you have to consider with connectors is all these different use cases that, of course, people think about when they drop their phone in the water, but don't think about otherwise.
2: I think people would definitely be on board with more, more waterproofing to the iPhones in general.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Especially when you have that worst case situation where, you know, here's a piece of advice, right? We sometimes run tips. And here's a tip. If you happen to be out this summer at the swimming pool, for example, or the beach, and you have your phone out in the hot sun and your phone gives you the warning that's saying it's too hot. Here's what you should not do. Don't grab your phone and dunk it underwater and wave it around under the water in an attempt to cool it off. What do you think happens when you do that?
2: I have no idea, but it just does not sound like a good idea. Well, what what are these phones made out of what what material do they use glass metal what kind of metal uh the iPhone 10 is stainless steel and then aluminum on the uh the 8 and 8 plus uh-huh
1: and aluminum has a thermal co- a thermal coefficient of expansion right true yeah so when it gets nice and hot it expands somewhat and you've had it expanding and now you shake it out in the water where is that water going
2: Right on the inside.
1: Right into a ninety-nine dollar replacement under Apple Care Plus at the Apple Store is where it's going. That's what happens with your phone when you shake it underwater after having it out in the hot sun. It's it's just not a perfect implementation of water pr- water tightness, and and that's what they're working on here is trying to figure out ways to do better about that. It, it, certainly, it's a water resistant phone,
2: but a waterproof phone is a difficult thing to achieve.
1: Now, in in the sporting world the mondial is coming up the world cup is coming up have you been paying attention to that at all Andrew?
2: not too much i mean i've seen a lot of the news coming out from apple and apple adding some some series support and a few other things but i don't watch a lot of uh a lot of sports other than some baseball and some college football yeah
1: and i imagine that you know it's an interesting thing because first of all football or soccer is what i call it is, is not that big in the u.s anyway although it's been growing in popularity and Second of all, the US didn't even qualify for the tournament. They're they're not in the World Cup. So it's easy to imagine that a lot of our US listeners are not even interested in this, but Apple is popular all over the world, and Apple unveiled a variety of features. So they've got a couple of things. On Apple TV, cable subscribers can access Fox Now app in the US, TSN and RDS in Canada, and BBC Sport in the UK to follow the games. Siri is aware of the scores for the different matches, so you could ask when is the France-Australia match? And Siri would tell you that France meets Australia in the group stage of the FIFA World Cup on June 16th, 2018 at 3 a.m. Of course, depending on your local time. And they give you the schedule and tell you what TV network it's on and also the sports potentially. So the voice feature is, is something that Apple is doing. They've added support for soccer in nine countries, Brazil, Russia, Denmark, Finland, Malaysia, Turkey, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. In addition to the 26 that already offered it, And in those places, Siri can answer questions about scores, match times, rosters, and more. And users can set notifications on iOS devices to tell them when their favorite squad is playing. You can also follow the tournament on Apple News, which will curate the coverage for you, because that's what Apple News does. And Apple Music will have special playlists from all 32 nations competing. Now, some U.S. corporate podcaster... uh, I'm going to say that again. Some corporate partners for the World Cup, including Fox, have been left holding the bag when the U.S. team failed to qualify for the tournament, therefore reducing, but certainly not eliminating U.S. interest in the matches. The World Cup starts Thursday and runs through July 15th. So if you've got Siri, if you've got the uh, Apple News app, if you're interested at all, go ahead and try it out and let us know. Send an email to news at appleinsider.com or or go ahead and tweet at us to let us know how you get on using these features, because we're always kind of interested to see when Apple announces that Siri does something to hear from you and hear how well it does it. And other international is Apple support app has now come to 20 regions and picks up more languages. Do you use the Apple support app Andrew?
2: When I do have issues and I've definitely had a few kind of random issues. I love the support app. It is one of the best things that they've done. It is so easy compared to, you know, just calling in and waiting to get to someone or doing the callback feature. It is really, really nice. I really like that app. I love how, when you sign in, it like has all of your devices, um, walks you through the troubleshooting guides and stuff. It It's a really handy app.
1: Yeah, and if you in the old days, when you wanted to make an appointment with Genius Bar, you had to go to a web browser and go to support.apple.com and then go and pick your date and pick your product and all this kind of stuff. And, and being able to do it through the app and being able to chat with a rep through the app is pretty huge, isn't
2: it? Yeah, absolutely. But we did this piece for one of the news affiliates that was going over different apple support things and that was one of the biggest takeaways that they were surprised about when we were talking to them like they had no idea that that this existed and i feel like it's known well within the apple kind of community but outside of that people don't know about it and i feel like people should it is just so handy to get any of their stuff taken care of Um, i mean even just searching through support documents is easier through that app than it is through their own website
1: that's almost a little bit disappointing. You'd think they'd have the website just as well. But the important thing to note here is, is the experience versus a competing device kind of thing. You know, if you have a Motorola device, you get them on the phone and you, you tell them your problem. They go ahead and issue you a ticket. And in order to expedite stuff, you have to send in your device and wait for a few days without one because they won't send it to you back unless you expedite it. And in any case, they want a credit card to handle the expedited shipping versus having an Apple product using the chat app, walking into an Apple store and getting your product replaced. It's alarming just how fast you can get it done using the Apple stuff. Oh, absolutely. So the news here is that Apple is updating the the support app with these 20 new regions. And, And they didn't name which regions they are, but the languages kind of identify them. So Denmark, Finland, Hungary, Indonesia, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Russia, and the Czech Republic. Are all a part of that, and and another change is that people can choose their preferred language regardless of which country they're using the app in, which honestly just makes sense because you know there are all sorts of expatriates that live in different countries and may want to use the app in their preferred language. And the other thing that location always gets wrong, whether it's geolocation for a browser or stuff like that, is is countries that are dual language or or even more than one more than two languages, like uh, you know Switzerland. Switzerland has. German, has French, and, and also has some English speakers. Primarily, they're German and French. And typically, people who geolocate and try and assign a language for Switzerland always pick German. What about the French speakers? I mean, they are not second-class citizens. They are just as good as everyone else there, and, and it's a legitimate language. So it's this is the right approach, is allowing that selection. The The Apple support teams are basically a fundamental part of the brand, and the company is looking to expand them. There's There's talk of this potential North Carolina campus. And it's presumed that that's where an expanded customer support operation would be going. So, Andrew, have you been following the Qualcomm and Apple legal fight?
2: Um, a little bit here and there, definitely going in and out as this seems to stretch so long.
1: That's just the nature of legal fights, for one yeah. thing. So th- this fight is over the modem that gets used in the iPhone and, and potentially also iPad. The, the modem is the radio that... Does the cellular service connection and Qualcomm has that fight because CDMA, which is the technology that's used code division multiplexing, is is the technology that's used for Verizon and Sprint cellular networks and and used maybe in a couple other countries in the world. It's really um, something that Qualcomm invented. They own all of the patents on it. And Apple, when when Apple first started shipping iPhone four or four, yeah, iPhone four with Verizon support, it was because they bought the Qualcomm modem put that in there and this dispute is basically a licensing dispute it accused apple it accuses, say that again. It accuses qualcomm of withholding nearly one billion dollars in promised payments in, in retaliation for responding truthfully to law enforcement agencies uh there was a, a south korean antitrust investigation that resulted in qualcomm being fined about 150 million and the ftc launched their own probe and basically, the initial lawsuit to kick this whole thing off is Apple claiming Qualcomm is charging Apple at least five times more in payments than all the other cellular patent licensors that they have agreements with combined and reinforces its dominance through exclusionary tactics and excessive royalties. And that's, you know, Qualcomm is the exclusive chip supplier for a long time. They they are the only ones that have the license, you know, they, they own the patents for the Verizon and Sprint CDMA technologies. And Apple did move to Intel modems, but this is an ongoing problem. This is an ongoing case, and it's not going to be settled anytime soon, I would guess. The, the difficulty is that if Qualcomm gets in front of a favorable judge to them, that there could be an injunction that would block the sale of iPhones with the Intel modem in a country. So, for example, if, if you had a judge that sided with Qualcomm, the they they could block the sale of all iPhones with Intel modems and require that they be the Qualcomm modem product for a whole country. Now there was a judge that did side with Qualcomm and did rule that way, but that was postponed until the the, the ruling was postponed until the European Patent Office can decide on whether or not the patent has validity. China's Patent Review Board is also beginning its own hearings, so this is this is going to keep going for a while, and this is important because it, it talks about Apple owing, whether, you know, if, if there's a settlement and Apple does turn out to owe, then Apple owes somewhere between 2.5 and 4.5 billion in unpaid fees. Um, there's going to be the possibility of a sales embargo, which is difficult. Um, it, it, it has a big impact on what Apple can do and what Apple's supply chain looks like and what Apple's sales look like. Uh, An Apple victory deals a huge blow to Qualcomm and Qualcomm needs to survive because qualcomm provides chips that do other things besides the cellular modems qualcomm has a number of processors that are used for competing android devices and well that say you know how if you care about apple how could that possibly be a problem a healthy marketplace a marketplace that has competing devices is one that helps apple develop improvements in their own products so a weak qualcomm is not necessarily good for apple either this is is one of the things we're going to keep monitoring. It's going to lurch its way through government's bodies and the courts. And I'm I'm sure one day, eventually, we will reach the end of this thing, but it's not happening anytime soon. Let's talk
2: networking. Perfect.
1: I know that's your most favorite, exciting topic. It is
2: it? absolutely my most favorite topic.
1: Uh, you and me both. I, I have been doing so much match networking this week. You have no <laughs> idea. You, you know, I, um, let's see the products that I brought with me here. I brought the, uh, Amplify HD router. It's the, uh, the mesh system mm-hmm. kit and their, and their teleport kit. And I also brought with me the Zyxel Multix kit. Okay. Or Multi-X kit. And, and you recently reviewed, uh, Velop a while back and you reviewed Orbi this week.
2: I did not do the Orbi review this week. I re- I looked at the original Orbi and I was not a fan. I was not a fan of the original Orbi. I did not do... It might have been Roger. Oh, Roger! Yes.
1: Roger got the new Orbi. So, just for my own knowledge, or why? Why were you not a fan? Because a lot of people liked that one. The Wire Cutter liked the original Orbi. It was popular. I,
2: I was just not seeing the. I have tested quite a lot of these mesh routers, and I was just not seeing the performance that I saw with the other ones. And what for me one of the biggest ones is there was a critical bug that was blocking HomeKit devices from operating properly, and they well yes yeah, so that, that needs to die in the fire yeah but
1: the when you say performance I gotta ask because I, I, I break performance apart I talk about signal dispersion and speed absolutely and when you weren't seeing the performance it, it was
2: speed was was my primary concern um it was just, I mean we have we have gigabit fiber here so. The wire heading into our routers is is for sure not the limiting factor. So um, really just, you know, wireless AC or whatever it is that <clears throat> we're using is going to be the limiting factor to my devices. Whatever they can handle, um, I need to be able to get out of my routers. And so far of the routers that I've tested, the Velop, the larger Velop routers and the second gen Eero have been able to give me the top speeds consistently while still offering full coverage of my home. So those two have been my favorite. Um, I'm currently using the larger Velop routers, even though I kind of kind of thinking about switching to the Eros again because I liked their app and some of the, the add on features that they had. But when I compared all of them, including to the Amplify, I would even the Amplify, I think it was getting better speeds than the Orbi. And I know the speed was, again, something that I heard a few people kind of knock against the Amplify router.
1: Absolutely. It is. And that's something that I've been experiencing here. Although I have to say it's gotten that there have been some changes with the latest firmwares and they've been rolling out firmwares like mad because since I've been here this past week, I've updated firmwares three separate times. Oh, geez. Which is really frequent. I'm, I'm saying they went from like 268, 269, 270, and yesterday it was 27.1 and they just keep throwing them out. And it's it's interesting. So you know how some mesh nodes use tri-band so mm-hmm. that you can get your 2.4 and your 5 gigahertz and then they'll use another radio for their backhaul? Yep. Amplifies mesh nodes, which are these giant candlestick-looking things, um, only are dual radio. They're 2.4 or 5 gigahertz. But the app now allows you to select which one it is. Formerly, they seemed to only appear as 2.4 to the clients, but now you can choose which one you're going to expose. Okay. Which is kind of a neat trick. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, we know that 2.4 is, is a more crowded space, but it travels further. It travels through walls a little bit better. It travels through, through obstacles a little bit better. And the 5 is, is a little bit less crowded, but has that, that tighter dispersion they've been doing some neat tricks with it. It's still slow. It's still much slower than it should be. It's still much slower than I want it to be. It's much slower than than other routers that we've tried, than other mesh systems that we've tried. Um Eero, like you say, was good. Google wi was actually quite good in the end. Um, Linksys Velop, like you've got the first, t- those three tall towers are pretty good. But Amplify, for whatever reason, it looks like a beautiful piece of hardware. It's very nice, but it's just been giving me so much trouble. And I'm going to write all about it. We'll publish that on Apple Insider. What about the Orbi V2? What did Roger say about this?
2: Um, I didn't dive into it too much. It looks pretty much the same thing, but it had some additional uh, hardware, or not hardware, like hardwire option compared to the original units. And I know it was just a quick hands-on, I believe. I don't think he dove into the full review, did he? Or did he get to the full review?
1: No, uh, this is this is an early hands-on. Okay. This is a first look. Yeah. So the, the thing is, you ought to be able to plug your gigabit fiber into the router and then plug a wired connection into that router and get 960 meg, 930 to 960 meg up and down, and and be able to see that without a problem. And when you turn on wireless and you go AC, you will see a drop, but you ought to be able to get six or seven hundred if you're, if things are optimal. And if you're seeing less than that, then I start to have question marks. And and that's what I was seeing when I was on my gigabyte fiber at home with the amplifier, is that I was getting in the 400s and 300s, which just is not right. No and here i'm on a much slower connection from the isp the isp connection as near as i can tell is is something absurd like 100 down and two up oh jeez! can you imagine? i cannot
2: imagine uploading some of our our 4k videos to youtube with with that kind of upload speed
1: At, or or the podcast for that matter looking for fun times tonight <laughs> when we produce this thing but the uh Cable modem is asymmetric. You sacrifice upload speeds in, in order to have larger download speeds, where, where fiber is symmetric, more or less. And I, I'm just kind of surprised that they biased it that widely. You know, normally you'd see something like 6 up, 12 down or something like that. Here, 2 up, 100 down is just mad. That's insane. I'm not sure what they were thinking. But uh, we've, we've been using that router. I'm prepared to tear that one down after we finish recording and put up the, the Zixel unit. Which has also had a number of firmware updates. And they've got, besides their Wi-Fi backhaul, which is what they started launching with, because that's the obvious thing. You know, most people, when they're putting up a mesh system, are going to place mesh nodes around their house and try and and use the app's advice on where to place them. Or if they're uh, slightly more technical, they'll use something like Netspot or Wi-Finer on the Mac to be able to, to see where the signal dispersion problems are. But Zyxel biased for, for Wi-Fi backhaul first because people are just going to put them up and presume that it works, right? People who have this problem don't have Ethernet wired throughout their homes 99% of the time. But they just updated their firmware to add for Ethernet backhaul as an option. And so um, I'm debating whether or not I want to wire this, this house here 6,000 miles away from my home. <laughs> you know, it's always a question, what are you going to put in place and then leave and hope works?
2: Yeah, I tend to set stuff up and then decide, wait a minute, do I really want to actually leave it like this? It works, but I've got wires everywhere, then you have to tear down and...
1: Yeah, you know, am I going to be the one supporting this from across the ocean? And how much do I want to do that, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, probably. You're going to get those phone calls. Oh, absolutely I am. So I'm, I'm
1: debating whether or not I go ahead and run. And, and first of all, where in the heck do I acquire Cat6 while <laughs> I'm here? And a crimper? End to end. And ends. And because DIY stores in America have that stuff. DIY stores here? Less so. So it's it's going to be an interesting challenge to see what I do. So that's going to be fun times. So we're going to be talking more about that. But but one thing we can talk about is this. Mike Worthley wrote an article for us about decision-making when planning your network. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he talked about when you've got a large number of devices, and we do, if you look at your router, you'll see easily 15 to 30 devices connected to it because everyone's got a phone, everyone's got an iPad, everyone's got a TV streaming device. You've got a ton of things on your network that are connecting, right? So you need to start planning your network. And And some guiding advice is things that don't move can be wired. Things that do move should be wireless. Thinking about how wireless signal propagates. I mentioned NetSpot and WiFinder a moment ago. Have you ever used either of those?
2: Yeah, I'm actually working on something using NetSpotter right now to help kind of like a tutorial on how to use like NetSpotter to, to help optimize your wireless network and stuff. Yeah, I've been using,
1: so I've had NetSpot Pro for a long time, and uh, I've been using it for all of the reviews where I publish a map showing what the signal looked like before and after I put a mesh system in place. The WiFinder is the same company, but instead of having to, to do all the things that the Pro version does, it's more consumer approachable because it's simply just about figuring out your signal dispersion. For your home network. So I, I highly recommend people take a look at that. And if you're going to publish the article on NetSpot, I'll publish the one on WiFinder and we'll just cover both ends of it. How about uh, that? That sounded good to me. All right. Mike talks about having Ethernet backhaul, if you can. It's obviously easy in new construction. It's a lot harder in existing construction. Um, of course, European-style construction has conduit running through the walls. So they have concrete walls and plaster walls, but they have these plastic conduits running through them. And so you can fish the cable pretty easily through it. Um, in U.S. homes where we tend to be constructed with drywall or gypsum wall and uh, timber studs in the walls, it's a lot harder to retrofit. Power line networking is one of those things that works primarily very well in Europe, but doesn't work very well in North America. And the reason is that in Europe there is 240 volt, and it's a single phase power box kind of thing. And, and so when you plug them into wall outlets, you can be sure that one wall out will be able to see the other in the fuse box. But in America, we have we have it split into two separate 120 phases. We have a 120 phase and then a separate 120 phase. And we join them together for our 240 volt appliances. And so what happens is if you ever use line and you plug them in, 50-50 shot that it will actually see the other unit because it doesn't cross the phases in the fuse box. <laughs> so power line can work in a pinch. But for the most part, the best thing you can do is think about using Ethernet as a backbone and using sort of a hub-and-spoke kind of arrangement as opposed well to daisy-chain things if you can, you know, use switches instead of hubs, um, and really thinking about where your Wi-Fi placement is and, and where products should go. So, for example, if you have a network-attached storage device, it's not always best to have it next to the router, even though that's the central location. If it's being used for media streaming, it may be better to get it out on the network closer to the media streaming device so that it's able to make those that, that data transition just that much faster. It's, it's all kinds of little things like that. It's it's there's no one great amazing recipe for fixing your network or designing a network. It's it's about optimizing for your uses really. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely something that's very, you know, not personal, but but personal. I mean, it's it's changing on in everyone's home. So you can't have just like a ground rule of oh, just throw some Ethernet lines in there and make sure your Wi-Fi is nice and spread apart. But and
1: you you can make some sort of beginning rules like that, right? If you had an Ethernet backbone run everywhere and said, "Put your Wi-Fi access points at the ends where you need them most," you could get pretty close. But it's it's very difficult to design for that. And as you say, people's needs change over time.
2: Yeah, and I mean, there are basic things, you know, hardwiring your access nodes would be would be really nice if that was possible. But I know in in my home, in my rental. I'm not able to do those types of things. So when I'm looking at different routers, there was a there was a decent difference between like the the second gen Eros because the the access points in like their starter pack they're only those dual broadband nodes where the main one is still tri band. So that was that's kind of why I leaned towards the Linksys option because they were all tri band and that definitely showed a little bit of improvements in the the far extremities of my home. So just kind of keeping those things into consideration is, is good.
1: Yeah, no, I had, uh, I, I've still got the Eero V version 2 installed in a system in a, in a home in the States. It's, um, I have a friend's house that I use as a test bed sometimes because he's got such a black hole of coverage in part of his house. It makes it really easy to say, hey, can I come over and hang out and we'll put up some Wi-Fi? And, uh, and we do. And it's easy to tell immediately if it solves the problem or not. And he actually liked the Eero V2 even with that, those Dual band nodes, more than say the Amplify or some of the others that we've tried there.
2: Yeah, I and and not just
1: based on looks, but performance wise, right? It filled the black hole. Oh
2: yeah, I I love the Eero routers. Like they're they're really awesome. They've got a lot of really nice features. Their app is, I think, a lot nicer than than the Linksys app. And while the Linksys has really good performance, there's just weird things about it. Like right now, my the node in my office has a red light on top. For no reason, the app says it's fine, it's up to date, I've restarted it, I've unplugged it, it still has a red light instead of blue that all the other ones have. And it seems just to be inexplicably there for for no reason whatsoever. The thing that offended me about Lynxis Velops app
1: was that it took twenty panels in the app to set the thing up. <laughs> it does walk you through like, a lot. Seriously. There, there's ridiculous number of, of things that it requires in order to get you through to actually being set up. Euro, three screens, right? Something like that. It's, it's that fast. Yeah, absolutely. Now, changing gears completely, we'll go ahead and wrap this up after this story. There was a change that happened in the App Store guidelines issued during WWDC, and it went largely unnoticed, but a couple people picked up on it, and so we wrote about it, and basically... There is now a ban on developers building their own databases with collected contact information and sharing them with, without permission. So the revised guidelines were released last week and iOS developers only needed to secure initial permission to harvest contact data. That was the way it used to be. You could go ahead and say, can I access your contacts? And from there they could go ahead and harvest everything and and use it and build a database and they could see when phone numbers were last updated or when people were last contacted and get a sense of how current contact information was and, and really what your network looks like. And you could transfer that into some random server or upload a Dropbox or do pretty much anything you wanted once the user gave permission to access. Under the new rules, developers are not only prohibited from creating, sharing, or selling databases based on the contact info, but they have to use it explicitly for what they say they will, unless they get further information. So, so where do you stand on this?
2: I think my first takeaway was that I was thrilled that that was kind of like a direct blow to that Facebook VPN. That was my immediate thought when I heard about that because I think that what the, I think it's called like a Navo that is kind of just going out there parading as a VPN, but is literally just an excuse for Facebook to collect a bunch of data. And I feel like things like that—that that is really fishy and and not good for actual users who may not be as technically savvy to know what is going on. So I think in those situations really good. I don't know if we're going to see some bad side effects from that like you kind of add this rule. We're going to have to see how it plays out with different apps, but I mean I think overall it it seems like a like a good policy to enforce.
1: I agree it's a good policy. One of the questions that I have is that Apple's had this privacy stance for quite some time. You know, if, if we talk back to when this first permission was required in 2012 as a result of PATH going out and sucking up the whole contact information without even asking for permission, Apple's known that this was a problem for some time. Apple's understood how sensitive that information is. How did it take them six years to decide that they need to prohibit this
2: behavior? That's a good question. I, I have no idea why they didn't put something out there sooner. I mean, maybe just because it got a lot of public attention with a lot of this Facebook stuff that was happening where they put more focus on it, but they do seem to be slow to adopt a lot of app store changes. So it could just be their normal bureaucracy of, of getting things like that done.
1: It's, It's that, or perhaps the light touch where if you change the rules too many times, you create a situation where developers can't predict what's going to happen and then become hesitant to release product. Yeah. And so by keeping keeping the rules stable and keeping things predictable over time, you, you create a place where people understand what's going to happen more than likely and feel comfortable using
2: it. Absolutely. When I was out in Chicago for their education event and they did the CNBC thing with um, Kara Swisher and um, or maybe with MSNBC, one of those two, but Tim Cook was giving his little interview there. And one of the things that he touched on just in general of, of how Apple looks at regulation and rules is they're very much about light touch because you can put in these rules and you don't know how it's going to, what it's going to snowball into. You don't want to keep any too many rules. It becomes unpredictable, like you said. Um, and you don't know what, if there could be unintended consequences to making those rules. So if they just start to throw a bunch of rules at the app store, trying to crack on all those little things, it could end up really frustrating developers, which I think is the one thing that Apple does not want to do at least any more than they already do with some other um, really weird policies.
1: Absolutely. Well, Let's go ahead and wrap things up here, because next up we have an interview with Geert Bevin. Geert Bevin is of Moog Music, and he is the iOS product manager and the software engineering lead. And so we get to talk all about what it's like taking classic synthesizers from the 1960s and 70s and 80s and turning them into iOS apps and what happens when you do that and what you do about trying to preserve the vintage nature of them versus adding features and and these decisions that you have to make. It's really interesting. So we'll get right to that. I'm here in the vault again, and joining me is Geert.
0: Yeah. Hey, Victor.
1: Did I pronounce that correctly? It's close enough. (laughs) I'm so sorry. So you are an engineer with Moog. Yeah. Uh, Can you tell me a little about that role?
0: So I work at Moog and do primarily software engineering. Um, It started a bit more than three years ago, where I was actually a user of Moog apps, specifically Animoog. And I have a history of of open source software development. So I like to go in and fix things or help people out. And I, I saw there were a couple of things that were not updated, you know, related to the latest versions of iOS. And so I reached out to Moke and I asked them if I could help them, which is kind of a weird thing. They weren't used to that. And after a few conversations back and forth, then we met at a few trade shows. And they said, well, you know, have a go at it. And so I started helping them out, just trying to, you know, update the apps so that they would work really well in the latest versions of iOS. Um, and that's that's where it all started from. And then now we've got a nice little team of four people working on new apps over the last... Uh, years, we brought out Model 15, Model D, which are two uh, simulations of famous synthesizers that we built in the sixties in and the seventies. Um, and then we we've brought Animo to some new levels, to some new capabilities, like adopting the Apple Pencil, um, allowing Force Touch to have an influence uh, on the iPhones. And and then like we're sort of brainstorming where we can go next now. Um, so it's a um, it's a very inspiring and creative role because the Apple iPad and iOS platform allows for so many things. It's so versatile and uh, so stable actually that we can really forget about a lot of the difficulties of how to get things to work uh, and, and, and design our apps towards the users, towards you know, building a real synthesizer that feels like a synthesizer on an iOS device. You were telling me before we began
1: about how people use the devices and and how you know the apps are available on the the phone and the iPod Touch mm-hmm. that people tend to to work with them on the iPad. Help, help me understand just a little bit about that.
0: What's what's the way that people use these things commonly? So, um, one of the great feature that I think that Apple has is it allows you to build apps that run on all their devices. You do have to, as a developer, um, you know, be conscious of which device you want to target. Um, At least we are. You know, one option is I build an app and it scales up all the way to the iPad, or it scales down from the iPad to the iPhone, which makes it not very usable. Now, what we do is we actually craft all our interfaces and all our experiences Towards each individual device, so that we try to optimize it as well as possible. But obviously, you know, a smaller screen allows for you know less space, you know, less immediate action. Um, so, what people do is they actually perform more with the iPads if they use the screen as the actual input device, as the keyboard, or as the expressive uh, controller. But what other people do is that they design their sounds on the iPad, and thanks to iCloud, um, they sync their presets automatically to their iPhone or iPod Touch devices. And then they, if they use, for example, an external keyboard uh, over MIDI or any other controller, then they use, I know a few people that just travel with an iPod Touch and they plug that into the PA, and they know where their presets are, they've already crafted all of them, and then just play it as a sound module. Uh, maybe they make a little tweak here or there, um, or maybe they make a little tweak here or there, or they um, you know, make sketches of sounds, ideas that they have, and then they might refine it on the iPad.
1: When you're creating a analog synth from history, <laughs> Are, are you, I mean, you're obviously trying to be very faithful to it, but some yeah. of these products, they, they didn't do polyphonic audio. You could only play one note at a time. Exactly. They, they weren't necessarily velocity sensitive. Mm-hmm. What are the considerations you take into to trying to be faithful to them versus updating them? Right. How do you approach this?
0: Well, the first thing that we, we really do is to try to get the sound. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? People want to get that Moog sound of the different synthesizers, like Model 15 and a Model D, they want to get that sound out of the app. So the first effort goes towards designing the sound engine and listening a lot. And listening, everyone in the factory participates in that. So we've got a lot of people that have you know, knowledge of the history, that actually have used those legacy instruments on stage, or were techs for people that were using them on stage, have prepared them, they know all the variations, um, so we work on that sound engine. And then in parallel, um, we design the UI, which is a big part of how you interact with a synthesizer, is how does it feel? How do the knobs behave? What are the curves? How uh, do you craft the sounds in a rewarding way? Um, you, you can set up a knob in such a way that you actually feel very frustrated about finding the sound, or you can craft those knob curves in a way that The areas that are usually less interesting have less range on the knob, and the other areas have more range on the knob. Um, So then we think about how that would translate to a touch device. Um, We try to stay as faithful as possible to the look also, but one of the you know, big efforts is how does it feel when you slide your finger over it? Does it get obviously it's not the same tactile response, but you get a similar emotional response. Um and then to translate it to new features, it's actually quite tricky. I mean, for instance, if you have a monophonic synth that is very punchy and typically like a Model D has very punchy bass lines, they actually saturate a little bit when they have their initial attack. If you turn that into a polyphonic patch uh, and you have the same power, you you create distortion, uh, which usually th- is not what you want when you have polyphony. So what we did on Model D is we sort of automatically compensate when you switch to polyphonic mode, it's going to decrease the volume of the individual voices so that when they mix together and you play multiple notes together, you don't get that distortion. Um, so other things we also do is look at how the multi-touch surface can... You know, enhance the experience of the musician. Um, and we started out with Animo, where we came up with a new keyboard that has inspired quite a few other synthesizer apps uh, since then. You can look at that keyboard a little bit instead of having keys that you press down. They're more, more like blades that are arranged in linear fashion next to each other and you slide your fingers Backwards and forwards in order to have additional expression. Maybe. And so we translated that keyboard, for instance, to the Model 15 app. And so I'll, I'm going to show you what that sounds like. Let me just turn up the volume a little bit. So this is a very dull sound. And as I slide it away, it gets brighter. So this is something that we absolutely couldn't do the keyboards, the real keyboards, but it is a unique feature of the iPad instrument. Another thing that this does is, instead of having the standard piano key arrangement, where you have the full chromatic scale going all the way from C, C sharp, D, all through the whole octave, Mm -hmm. here you can pick which keys are part of the scale that you're playing, and you can't play a wrong note, so I can (laughs) just slide my finger left and right and play all the notes of the key that the song uh, is using that I'm playing against. So that's like a feature that is pretty unique to what is possible on iOS. And is that Animo
1: that you're using there?
0: No, I'm using, this is the model 15 app, which okay. is a modular synthesizer. Right. And what we did, so we we came up with this keyboard for the Animog app, but it felt so natural to connect that to the model 15 app that we did this. So we sort of transposed the discoveries we did with Animoke towards this legacy modular recreation.
1: Amazing. I'm thinking, because normally when we talk about analog synthesizers, I'm just going to explain this a little bit for my listeners, okay, right? Cool. Modular synthesizers, we, we associate synthesizer with being a, a piano keyboard, mm-hmm. but that's an incorrect assumption that, totally. that modular synthesis is where you have these units that are filters and oscillators and and things like this that affect the sound and patch cables that go between them to link them together to create a tone or or something that that wobbles or something that vibrates or something that makes a sound and the the keyboard is really just a controller for those sounds it 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 can be for pitch or attack or anything like that
0: but back in the day you know and People are mostly familiar with the synthesizers, you know, that sort of came out of Moog, because they they're really geared towards popular music and trying to recreate what people have learned on a traditional keyboard. But there are other synthesizer makers like Don Buchla, who also you know created synthesizers in the seventies. That use similar sort of touch interfaces where it's not the piano keyboard. It can even be, you know, controllers that float in space and that sense, you know, a 3D position. Um, so it's actually really good much for modular synthesis because the only thing that you're really doing is, so the principle of modular synthesis is that you've got an electrical signal that is tied to the sound. In a similar way that, like, you will strike a string on a guitar to, you know, to uh, energize it and make sound, it's the electrical signal that is going to energize something, and it's it's just a matter of picking what is going to provide those impulses. And it can be a key that you press down, but it can very well be your finger that slides in a certain direction, uh, or that continuously press down, presses down.
1: It's, it's it's really interesting seeing these things come to things like the iPad or the iPad Pro that you're using here. It's a very vintage kind of interface, and, mm-hmm. and with a lot of constraints from the legacy device. But does, does using touch from the the Apple touchscreen kind of thing really change the, the the way that you control it? Does it really make a big difference?
0: No, it it does. Obviously, it does. One of the things you you lack is you know tactile response. Um, there is you no know, I always regret when someone writes in and says, hey, I'm I'm a blind person, mm-hmm. or uh, I have you know, bad eyesight. We don't really have an answer for those people. And I, I always feel sad about that on, on iOS. Um, it, it is sort of possible with an app that has fixed interface elements where you can uh, use voiceover to guide them. But in like this modular app, there's so much going on. It would only be it would virtually be impossible to guide them through it. And it's also dynamic; it shifts around. You can pan around this interface. Um, so that is one of the things you're lacking. It's the tactile feel of going through an instrument and closing your eyes and be able to use it. Um, so I. That's something I hope we'll get to one day. Um, but it, it is what I'm personally really missing in, in in this kind of interface. But on the other hand, you get so much in return. So what you get in return is mobility. You can make music anywhere. Um, you can make music if you've got 15 minutes on lunch break while you're waiting on the bus. Um, if you're just you know sitting with friends and have an idea, and they can join in on, on it, you just have it with it with you, and they might have ideas. So um, I gave this talk yesterday uh, about you know, mobile music making on iOS. Uh, in order to prepare for that talk, I asked a question on, on, on a few forums and, and, and uh, Facebook groups: like, what would you have wanted to know before starting to use iOS for music making? Um, And that is one of the things that sort of came up, was that a lot of people weren't aware of how much the mobility would change their way of working. Um, And so the common theme was, instead of having to wait for the weekend to have really time to sit in the studio and use my synthesizer and get into the mindset, they don't have to ramp up to that. They can be continuously in a creative mindset and actually create whenever they want, whenever some inspiration strikes. That is so powerful.
1: You know, the, I, I was talking about this the other day, where Don Buchla, when he made the Buchla synthesizer, he designed it to be packed up into a suitcase so that it could travel. Yeah. And it didn't always work; it tended <laughs> to break in travel. But that's one of the things that we don't really have to worry about any longer. Is mm-hmm. uh, with with the beauty of these kinds of applications. Exactly. Is that you can take a collection of iPads and perform from them. Yep. Now, tell me about some of the other features that you've gone ahead and put in these sort of modern features that that wouldn't have existed at the time of.
0: <laughs> well, one one of it's sort of obvious, but people might not realize that. But you did not have presets back in the time. Presets meaning pre-programmed sounds that you can just pull up and make music with. Yeah, you, presets were
1: masking tape.
0: Yeah, or 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 just you know drawings on a sheet of paper. Um, so what you have here is like hundreds of sounds that have been created by sound designers that you can just use with that vintage instrument, which is really powerful. Another obvious advantage to that is you can switch through those sounds while playing live. You don't have to spend 30 minutes rewiring all the cables and finding all the knob positions and hoping that you get it all right, <laughs> probably won't, but <laughs> hoping that it will all sound the way you want, which is it's sort of obvious, but it is a big deal. Um, so what, what, what else? Um, one of my favorite features also is something that actually Ableton came up with. It's called Ableton Link, um, and it is a system to wirelessly synchronize the tempo of uh, instruments and effects. So if you're on the same Wi-Fi network and you enable Ableton Link in an app that supports it and our apps support it, then it will automatically match the tempo of, you know, the arpeggiator or the sequencer that you're using. And you can use multiple synthesizers and they will always be in sync. You don't have to worry about it, which is... So I can have a drum
1: machine and a sequencer and the, the time will be... Yes. Across all of these Yes. In, in
0: yes. Time. And even if you change time, they will all follow time changes automatically. It's just, which is really amazing.
1: And, you know, I'm thinking back to to 20 years ago. You'd mm-hmm. use one. You'd use something like this to try and change things together. But yeah. one of them would have to be the master. And exactly. The sort of yeah.
0: And these. That's not the case. It's sort of they all join a group. And it's a the, flat hierarchy. Yeah. And, can, and Ableton figured out a way how to make that work. Um and it also synchronizes with Ableton Live. So if you have a computer that's on the same network, your Ableton live set will also be synced to the same tempo as your iOS devices. So that's one other nice feature. Um, One of the things we added to both the Model 15 and Model D app is built-in effects. You used to, you know, on on the real devices, you have to buy separate effect units and hook them up and figure out how to actually use them. Specifically in the model E, we, we included a, a very nice new effect that we came up with called a bender. Um, we initially intended to include a chorus, and then we were experimenting with it and saying, okay, we have a chorus, but you know, late at night we're sort of tweaking a few parameters and like hey, but this is starting to sound different, and we came up with this effect that we we called a bender because it sort of bends time in a stereo uh, spectrum, um, but instead of making it very long. It's usually it's it's geared towards short time periods with different modulation modulations in the left and the right channel, a little bit of saturation in there also, and it turns very simple sounds almost orchestral. It gives like a symphonic orchestral nature to it. Um so we included that there's a delay and then arpeggiator sequencer. Um on the model 15 app, which is the modular app we talking about earlier, we also include uh, a ribbon controller, which is an alternative controller that also existed back in the day where instead of pressing on keys, you have this long ribbon that you press on with your finger and you can slide left and right on, So, which also felt very natural for a you know, touch-based device. So we included that. Um, oh, there's so much. Um, yeah, One of my favorite features that I already talked about earlier is automatic backup and sharing of your presets towards all your devices. The only thing you have to do is have iCloud enabled. So the way we, uh, we offer that in the apps is as soon as you save a preset and you're online and you've got iCloud enabled, it will just automatically save to your, save a copy to your iCloud account. So you don't have to explicitly think about it. Um, and then when you're somewhere else, you have your iPhone with, it, with you and say, hey, you know that sound? I have an idea about how to improve it. Or you know that melody? I think it would work well with that sound, but I don't have it on my iPhone. It's no problem. It's an iCloud, so you can just pull it down and just continue working. Amazing!
1: That that sounds so wonderful. It's like where would we be without having an iCloud kind of service? You end yeah. up using a Dropbox, and so exactly. to create accounts and turn it on and set it up, and you, that's like twelve different steps that you've just saved for someone.
0: Yeah, and you know, and, and it's what I think is really important about this is. Usually when they're conscious steps, you will forget about doing them. You're like, Oh, I wish I put that patch on that preset on my Dropbox account, but I did not. Mm -hmm. So I don't have it. Now in this setup, it, you, you can forget about all of it. It's really when you have that urge to get back to it, then we'll be right there.
1: This is what I love about this modern era. You know, it, it, remember 30 years ago when Mm -hmm. you use a computer and if you didn't intentionally save something, (laughs) Then it was lost to time. Yeah, you had a power failure, and you didn't save it to floppy disk, and it was gone. Exactly. And now, finally, we're getting to a world where the default is save everything. Yeah. Don't lose anything. Yeah. My, you know, my, my intentional <laughs> default is just save everything for, exactly. me and I'll sort it out later. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I love it that that's possible. I love that that's something that everyone's getting on board with. Yeah now where where do when you record things you've got a sequencer in in model d when you're able to record with that where do those recordings go
0: well we've got actually in model d we've got an arpeggiator in in model 15 we've got a sequencer um so we've got a built-in looper in both of the apps which is also it's not intended to create full productions Mm -hmm. it's really sketchpad so that you can experiment with how you're layering sound so what happens is you've got this record button that you hit you start recording and as soon as you sort of finished with your initial phrase you hit it again and will automatically start looping go automatically to overdub mode and then you can switch to another preset and you know create another layer on top of it and so on and so on and so on that is saved in the app and you can export that to whatever you want you can you know it, it uses also Apple's, you know, iOS's built-in feature that, you know, allows you to open files with whatever app that support it. And since they're standard audio files, you can import them in a real, like, production app, or you can send it over, you know, iMessage to someone else, or you can post it on Facebook, or, you know, you, you can just whatever supports audio. Um, and then... If you really want to work on a full production, then there's a whole bunch of other apps like Aurea or Cubases that are, you know, digital audio workstations that run amazingly well on the iPad. And you can tie these together and it's sort of like connecting virtual audio cables between the synthesizer app and the digital audio workstation and get that sound recorded in, you know, the workstation. And then you can also work with multiple tracks and, and treat it as a full studio, really.
1: It, amazing, you know, it's the it's something we've talked about before on this program. Is is how do pros address the iPad and, and using an iPad for professional use, mm-hmm. and so I'm so glad you mentioned Cubasis and Aria because it's a question, you know, is the iPad ready for that kind of production? Oh,
0: you should have been in my talk yesterday. So one of the things I did, um, you know, one of the reactions I have gotten over the last. Number of years is, yeah, but you know, the laptop is way more powerful. So I went on Geekbench. You know what Geekbench is? You know, for listeners, Geekbench is a website that has a, a set of algorithms that apply to all sets of processors so that you compare the performance of the different processors. And you, you can browse through the results for different um, products like all the MacBook, MacBook Pros, MacBook Airs, like all the iPads, iPhones. And it turns out that they've actually matched up in speed now so the ipad sixth generation that you can buy for 320 bucks is just as fast as the macbook it's it's exactly the same speed hey we're back yeah (laughs) i was talking for a second about how
1: the you know the ipad doesn't necessarily have a physical keyboard Mm -hmm. and, and people really are attached to their software that they, they use that feels like it's more powerful or gives them more flexibility than right. an
0: iPad. So, you know, you can use a physical keyboard with the iPad, you know, over Bluetooth or through a straight USB connection if it's a class-compliant keyboard. But, you know, it's a little bit like saying, um, I don't like a guitar because the piano has keys. It's like well, they're actually different. You know, you can do different things on a guitar than you can do on a piano. In the same way, you can you know discover new aspects of your creativity as a musician by using a touch-based device by having software that has been designed for immediate interaction, where you don't have to reach for a mouse to tweak a parameter. You don't have to worry about assigning knobs to whatever you want to change. Um, it is all right there in front of you, and it has been, you know, created with that kind of workflow in mind. Uh, in a similar way, it also opens up completely new creative avenues. Like, for instance, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, there is a guy that brought out a new app called Pen 2 Bow, where you use the Apple Pencil um, to sort of slide over the surface and the speed of motion is going to determine, you know, one set of controls and then the inclination is another and stuff like that. But you can actually use it very realistically as a bow simulator on, uh, you know, of a real stringed instrument. But instead of trying to simulated uh, string instrument. You can use it for anything else. You could use the iPad as a controller, for instance, for your MacBook, if that's what you want, or use that as a controller for other apps that are running on the iPad. For instance, I have a lot of fun with that, connected to the Model D app, and then sort of, instead of playing keys, you get more fluid, string-like experience through synthesized legacy sounds. It's something that you probably never have explored before, and it you know, fuels your creativity in a way that nothing else can. Um, but if you are inclined of trying to you know, get to the traditional production flow, you can get much of it out of the iPad. Um, you just have to be cognizant about the fact that you work with apps that have been designed for full-screen use. Um, so don't think about dragging Windows around, because it's going to be frustrating. It's not intended for it. Um, one of the things I do think is quite unique in terms of music production is um, the way that workstations on the desktop have evolved is it's sort of like a trickle-down situation where you have hosts and everything is a plug to the host. So it's sort of on master and everything lives inside there. What I like about the iOS ecosystem is that it was not intended to have hosts. You, you have them no. now. You have like Aurea and Cubasis, we've talked about that. But when it was initially created, it very much mimics real-world hardware devices. So you can have one app that in the background can be connected through virtual audio cables to another app, um, which is technology that's called inter-app audio. And there's almost nothing that exists like that on desktop. You can get there by hacking things together, but it's not like an officially supported system. Uh, Some of the apps will not work with it. Um, while on iOS, all the apps work with it. So you can sort of very modularly compose your workflow on one device and as we mentioned before, still be super mobile. Um, and so craft your virtual studio by connecting everything together and you know, get access to sounds that would completely be impossible or very, very difficult and technically complex to set up if it was being a typical uh, you know, digital audio workstation scenario.
1: So, who, who are some artists that are using these kinds of tools now?
0: I don't know. That's <laughs> the tough question. Let's
1: throw that question out.
0: Um, you know, I, that's one of my worst things. The I re- re- no, no, no. I, I, re- I forget all names. Yeah. I really forget the names. I just. Well, I'm Victor, and, and, and you're uh, here. Uh, to yeah. end, so But they all blend together.
1: <laughs> Sorry. No, no. How, how should people who haven't been into Synthesis go mm-hmm. about learning? I feel like these apps, because they're so affordable, make it easy to, to try.
0: See, that is, that is one of the beauties about it, is you know, there's a lot of free stuff out there that is really good. But there's also a lot of very cheap stuff out there, like what we make is actually super cheap for what you get. Um, and one of the things we built into the Model 15 app are actually guided tutorials. So presets that have tutorials built in there into them that guide you through each step of how to create a synthesizer patch. Um, and then there are dedicated apps like Synthorial that actually teach you synthesis on an iOS device. Um, so that's one way of doing it. Another way is that it's still a very grassroots, passionate you know, community, um, which is pretty unique in the sense that if you go on like for example, the forums surrounding the uh, Audiobus project or an iPad Musician Facebook group, you will have a lot of the developers that are actually part of it. Um, People from my team and myself are on there. Um, Other companies like Steinberg make are on there. And, you know, Guys, making or almost all the apps you can find, they're present on those groups. So you get this one-to-one relationship with the users, with the developers. And if you've got a question or something is not clear, you will have this, you know, very inclusive reaction towards, hey, we'll help you out. Um, so I think that is a really nice way to to get into music instead of you know, having to hit against this huge wall of, wow how do I even install something and how do I connect it um, and then figuring out who to talk to you know, being grassroots and very passionate sort of gives everything in one place.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, 30 years ago we didn't really have this sort of resource exactly. and, and being able to reach out and actually speak to a developer yeah. is is still <coughs> super valuable. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what has been the, the best part of developing these applications for Moog and for iOS.
0: What's what's what have you gotten out of? What have you learned? What have we learned? Wow, that's a hard question. Um well how how much people are actually um, open to it? It was one of my personal fears, like when we were working on Model 15, because it's such uh, a tall order. It's it, you know, you know, uh, uh, a legendary synthesizer. I I was really scared that there would be sort of an aversion towards that, um, trying to recreate that experience in uh, a you know super digital environment, and it's completely not the case. So uh, I was pleasantly surprised by how well this has been received by everyone. Did you think there were a bunch of model 15 owners out
1: there that were going to be offended that this thing existed or or what was what was the the root of that?
0: Well, because there's this you know there is a debate that has been going on it's still going on analog versus digital. and is it, you know do you get the same thing out of it? And that's just that was really like a personal fear of mine. Um, and what I've seen is like last moke fests, that was so wonderful to see people having learned how to use the Model 15 on the app, and then stepping up to the real one and they could actually use it. Because it all translated. So it sort of comforted me in the fact that this is a, actually a really nice thing to do. Um, what else have I learned? Or what have we learned? I, 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 I'm very hesitant to speak for the company in this context because you know learning something is, I think, a personal thing. <laughs> right, and that's fine. I, I, So this is really not, I'm not speaking for the company. In of this course. I'm asking you. Well, it goes back to what I said just in the question before, is how much of a great community it is, and also amongst developers. Um, so we actually have a Slack channel for all developers, and people exchange ideas. People help each other out, like, hey, I can't figure this out. Do you know how to do it? Like a technical problem. And everyone will help everyone. It's just, it's just amazing. It feels really good. It feels good to be part of something that is, you know, n- not aggressively competitive. That's, everyone is just part of the same movement. Um, and it, everyone is very appreciative of everyone's efforts. So I really like that.
1: Yeah, that, that cooperation is really yeah. a, wonderful and sort of inspiring kind of culture. Yeah. Yeah. Where Where should my listeners go to check out the apps that you and your team have worked on?
0: Well, pretty easy, go to our website, modemusic.com, and they're all on there, and then you get links towards the App Store. Um, On YouTube, look for demo videos that users have used, have made, and, you know, just download them and play around with it. It's a cost of, like, two cups of coffee. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and you get a full-blown synthesizer that you have years of fun with. So. Wonderful! Thank you so much. Thanks for talking to me.
1: I, I, no, I thank you for talking with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Well, everybody, this is here from Moog. <laughs> we're so back. We're back. <laughs> <laughs> different setting. Different setting. Different room. Yeah. Different yeah. sounds. Different sounds. And. The You were just telling me when we last spoke about Geekbench and how the iPad has really become as, as fast as a Mac. Yeah. And one of the things that always comes up when we have this discussion is <laughs> is the flexibility of having a real physical keyboard and the software that works with it.
0: Right. Well, the iPad doesn't prevent you from using the physical keyboard if that's what you want. Right. You know, iPad... Got Bluetooth LE MIDI, which allows you to connect very easily wireless. You would actually very low latency, um, which is 17 milliseconds, which is a little bit over the threshold, but for most people, it's totally fine. You can also connect it through you know, the camera connection kit that gives you access to all class compliant USB devices. <laughs>
1: Don't
2: want
0: I'm here. I <laughs> it. It's going to be you a common thing. You, do, you, do, you do, you wanna
1: do you want to just do have that. a Skype call after the show yes. and, no, and we'll do that?
0: We can. We can. We can, we can. That's okay, okay with me if you do. I like being in person. Just, yeah. It's better. Would you yeah. better. Okay. We can go back down. Okay. I have to I block the door. no longer trust that.
1: Okay, maybe stop and
0: resume once they're done with their thing.
1: The Apple Insider Podcast is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Want to expand your potential? With over 65,000 courses starting at just $1,199, Udemy can help you develop your skills and discover new passions. Students around the world have used Udemy to get ahead and even switch careers. Visit ude.my slash Apple Insider or download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere. Well, this is the end of another perfectly good episode of the Apple Insider podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me was Andrew O'Hara. Andrew, where can people find you? Well, they can always
2: follow me on Twitter at Andrew underscore OSU. And of course, you can always find me, you know, several times a week on the uh, Apple Insider YouTube channel and, of course, on AppleInsider.com.
1: And I'm Victor Marks. I'm at vmarks on Twitter. Email us at news at AppleInsider.com. And if you've enjoyed this show please feel free to leave positive reviews on our iTunes. We'd love to go ahead and see those ratings and we'd like to hear from you. We are happy to take feedback and happy to sometimes leave your email on the show if you like. Thank you so much and we'll be back next week with more.